0: Well, good morning again. So we are in the book of 1 John, and we're in uh, chapter 5, chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater For the witness of God is this, that he is born witness about his son. These are the words of God. Praise be to God.
1: Well, it is exciting today. It's exciting to be in this text. I think we have about three more weeks in uh, 1 John, and then we'll be done. As John Weathersby noted, we will be going through the Psalms, uh, some of the Psalms, not all of the Psalms this summer. Uh, And one need only take a brief look at the Psalms to realize that it is a Herculean task to get through the Psalms. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, it is exciting to be able to go there too. It is a little sad that we come to the end of 1 John, is this, uh, this uh, epistle uh, from the last apostle, uh, from the last one alive, that all his brethren were dead by now. He was the last man standing. He was also the one that brought considerable experience uh, when he speaks to, this, uh, the, to the church in and around the area of, of Ephesus. Uh, this letter would certainly have been circulated to uh, the, to a number of these churches that were in that, that area. We had spoken previously about the general darkness that consumed the area around Ephesus. And by darkness, I mean that uh, evilness of the world, uh, as he would say in the Greek, the cosmos there, that it was a pagan culture and... John is writing this letter not only as a letter of the tests of the belief for uh, the believers that are there, but also uh, as as a testimony to the full deity of Jesus. It was a letter that was written to believers. It wasn't written to people to convince them of anything, but it was a letter written to build them up. Uh, to strengthen them in the in the area in which they live and and strengthen them in their in, in their in, in their belief, we always must remember that when these letters were written when the gospels were written, that the churches that received them uh, that these were not large churches. Uh, they weren't churches of five hundred or a thousand or ten thousand members. Uh, Probably to a large degree, they looked a lot like what we see here today. But they didn't have churches down the block either. Uh, Their church that these people would have attended was the only game in town. Uh, There there wasn't like a choice of churches, there wasn't a choice of denominations. There was one church in a pagan land that they went to and they were in Ephesus. Their friends and family uh, that were not believers in Jesus Christ were ones that would have been attending the the pagan festivities of the time. They would have been attending into pagan worship. They would have attended the feasts of Artemis and so forth and so on. And we know that through this letter, when he uses the term specifically about the antichrists have come, those who deny who Jesus is, uh, that he's talking about uh, the, the the full deity of who Jesus is, the full work of who Jesus is, against the pagan beliefs that are out there, against the beliefs of those who have left the congregation to do something else or to pull others away with them. And that's kind of where we 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 come into this uh, where we come into this from last week. Uh, just a little housekeeping that we will. We will uh, catch an interesting uh, piece of church history in uh, verses 7 and 8 when we get there. I'll address it briefly. There's not enough time in a sermon, nor is it sermonic material to address what we're going to address there, but just to to, uh, pre-warn you of a little bit of church history that we're going to hit when we hit 7 and 8, those particular verses, because what I read might not be what's in the scripture that you have in front of you. So, let's begin. We ended last week in verse 5 with a rhetorical question by the Apostle. He said, who is the one who overcomes the world? Who is the one that's victorious? Who is the one that conquers the world? Who is this person? What does that person look like? What qualities or or characteristics does that person have? In the rhetorical speech that he gives there, it's the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. It is that person that has victory over the evilness of this world, over this cosmos, as he would say. Remember, John uses the term a world in a minimum of four to five different ways and as many as seven different ways that he will use that in his writings. In this particular writing, it is the evil system that is in charge of the world. We know that evil system to be that which the devil himself controls. The things that are against God the things that are against his son, the things that are against the Holy Spirit, the things that draw you away from Jesus. All those things will be part of this evil world that he speaks about. And so when we come into that verse, uh, building on top of that, and it was interesting, we uh, John and I were both uh, taking a look at a particular uh uh, commentary this morning uh, about, uh, just an overall commentary about the books of the Bible, the way they're laid out and stuff like this, just in preparation for the oncoming study uh, or upcoming study in Psalms. And I said, uh, I said, check this out as we looked at first, uh, at first John and the layout, and he says, and they say clearly that because of the fluid nature of his writing in 1 John, it's impossible to imply an overall outline to the chapter. Is just very fluid in the way he's writing it. We could could easily understand that fluidity because John is writing as that old man, as I said before. He's 80, possibly even as close to 90 years old now. He has seen it all. He has experienced it all. Uh, He has been one of the sons of thunder, right, who who would be very bold in what they said uh, without even thinking about what they said. And now he's become that grandfatherly person. As, as, as death's door is there, as he will pass over this life into the next life, that he will pass over into the arms of the Savior finally, right? As, as he looks back over his life, and, the, and knowing Jesus, not only in the flesh, but risen Jesus, seeing the ascended Jesus into heaven, having uh, heard the words on the Mount of Transfiguration that this Jesus, uh, that he knows, and he's trying to pass along these things he knows to be true to this church and to build them up. So he had just said, "Is the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the one who conquers this world. And then in verse 6 it says, this is the one... That one is Jesus. Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. I'm going to lay that there, and I'm going to say that the that what we will see here is the testimony of the Trinity in these three verses that we are talking excuse me, these four verses that we're talking about. It is my desire that when we see the Trinity at work in the testimony of the work of the Son, that this will just confirm, as it did for them, the redemption that is found in Jesus as Savior. We have this first part, I would say, it's the testimony of the Son, Himself. The one that came by the water and the blood, not just by the water. What is is John talking about? Or more importantly, why is he talking about this? Why is he talking about the blood? Maybe we can grab onto the blood there and we know what that's talking about. That's got to be the cross. That's the most obvious thing. Uh, It's got to be the the blood-soaked cross is the blood, the, the confirmation that we get in there. But what does he mean by the water? Well, what he doesn't mean is he doesn't mean, he's not talking about birth of Jesus. Nor is he talking about the spear that went into Jesus' side and and pierced the pericardial sac and let the water out, the fluid out from there. John doesn't have time at the end of his life to get into the, the depths of those things that went on there. Remember, he had testified in the beginning that they were witnesses to Jesus in the flesh, the the one that was virgin born. No, he's speaking about something far more specific that that is in here, something uh, far more telling about the testimony and the witness of who Jesus is, his own testimony and witness to who he is. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3. And as we're turning there, we're going to talk a little bit about baptism. And it is forth that uh, we are going to have baptisms next week, uh, which is just awesome. And I hope that all of you can attend next week for those baptisms uh, to see uh, to to be there as the church body and confirming those baptisms that occur. But we have to remember. At the baptism of Jesus, who is there? Other than all the people that are there, we have John the Baptist is there. John the Baptizer is there. John, the cousin of Jesus, is there. This John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. The nation of Israel has had 400 plus years of silence. Remember, we preached through Malachi. And that was the last. That was it. Then 400 years where God was silent with Israel. There was nothing said. There was no prophets. There was no word of the Lord that came. And here we have John the baptizer. The one who was... This isn't part of the the message, but it's worth repeating. The one in Matthew chapter 3... Verse three, where he said, uh, uh, or excuse me, verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, "The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight, clear the way for the Lord." We've talked about this before. How when 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 a king was coming out to the hinterlands, the farthest reaches of the kingdom, to go to a village or or visit somebody out there, that they would straighten the roadways out. They would knock the hills down. They would make the the way of travel easy so that none could attack the king or whatnot that came in. Make straight the way for the Lord that is coming. John is speaking about the Messiah who is coming. And then surprise for John. He comes to him. Jesus himself comes to John for baptism. Now this is a conundrum. John has been baptizing sinful men and women and older children for quite a while. He's been out there calling to the city, come to me, repent, turn away from your ways, turn back, be baptized in the name of the Lord and turn back to Him. O Israel, Israel where the Lord has been silent. He is now the prophet that is speaking and calling them out. Authorized by God himself to say these words. And here we have Jesus shows up on the sea. He comes to the river itself. Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 13, it says this. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Now, one doesn't need to be a great biblical scholar to to notice some issues with this. Even the person that doesn't believe in Jesus knows that those who believe in Jesus claim that He was the sinless one. That there was nothing that Jesus needed to repent of. He was one without sin. John recognizes this too. Because he says in verse 14, but John tried to prevent him. Woe there, hard charger. This isn't for you. This is for everyone else that isn't you. But you see, and therein lies the rub, there's a problem. And Jesus knows exactly that it's not a problem for him. It's a problem of understanding for John what needs to occur. It says, but John tried to prevent him from saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? How is that possible? I'm the one that's a sinner. I'm the one that you need to baptize Jesus. You need to baptize me. This whole order of going on is wrong. But Jesus says these words in verse 15. But Jesus, answering him, said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that's John, permitted him, that's Jesus, to be baptized. To fulfill all righteousness? What are we talking about? What's going on? The easiest answer, the the, the 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 closest way that we can get to it quickly in the time that we have is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. We're all pretty much familiar with it. It seems like we can't go a week or two without, without quoting these verses. I'm actually surprised that Jim didn't quote it in Sunday school class today. But, but we always have it. We always keep it in our forefront. Right? It says, it says uh, that Paul is speaking. Uh, he says, Have this attitude yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, uh, excuse me, a form of a slave, that's doulos in Greek, and being made in the likeness of men. So, if I were to quiz you right now, you would say Jesus was sinless. And Jesus said, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And Paul said that he took the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus himself needs to do, he for him to be sinless, because he is in the form of a man, he needs to be fully obedient in that form of a man, okay? Okay. And we have here an Old Testament prophet that is calling all men to be baptized. Jesus is in the form of a man, so he needs to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to be fully obedient to the call of God to do. So that he can be fully in everything that he does, like us. That he needs to do this in all righteousness. This is the water of which John is speaking of. For him, it is, not, it is baptism that he is doing, that he must do and fulfill this thing as has been called of all men to be baptized as John is calling them out. Yes, he is fully sinless, but he is a man who needs to be baptized. I need to do this thing so I do not stand apart from every other man when I go to the cross. I don't stand apart from these and say, "Why well, I was a little different. I didn't need to do this thing that everybody else needs to do. This thing also needs to be done to fulfill all the righteousness that I am called to. Before the cross. Is that call for him to be baptized? It is that physical witness that all who stood there today that day, including John himself, saw occur. Now I'm going to be dealing with this baptism and you might as well just kind of either fold over the pages in your Bible or take the the little tags that you have in your Bible and and hold on to that because I'm going to be coming back to that as we go through the rest of 1 John. But this physical witness of the baptism is what is there. And then he talks about the blood, right? He didn't come only in the water. He just didn't perform this thing, this water baptism that goes on. It wasn't the, the confirmation of all righteousness that needs to be fulfilled, that wasn't just what it was, but it was the blood also. It is that blood of the cross, that blood of the crucifixion, the blood that was shed in the place of sinners. The one who, who takes upon the sin of all those who would be saved. That blood on the cross, the propitiary substitutionary atonement that happens there. His precious blood on the cross stands as that other part of that witness of what He has done. It stands there as John points out to who Jesus is in standing against the pagan beliefs that are in the society that he's talking through or to. It is that blood that stands as the confirmation and the witness to him and his work of redemption? It is that cross that's spoken of by the prophet Isaiah that we see that most detailed description of who Jesus is in Isaiah fifty-three. If you turn with Isaiah fifty three, well, we can we can we can dive into a couple little spots for brevity of time. That we do there, we we know that he was that Jesus was the root out of the parched ground in verse two. He is that stumbling block, that scandalon. It is scandalous. Jesus is scandalous that those who don't believe. Remember that Jesus of First uh, Corinthians that Paul would say that that uh, that that it would be the foolishness of the wise man is the cross. That the wise man don't under, understand it. it is that image. It doesn't take much to find it. Look up Alexandromos and his God. You can look it up on a Google search there. You'll find it was discovered at about uh, from a, a, a Roman uh, barracks at about 200 AD. And it's a picture and it says underneath it in the great Alexandromos and his God. And it's a picture of the cross with a man With the head of a donkey on it. Because you see, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In verse 3 of Isaiah 53, it says that he was despised of no importance. Of no importance except to those who are being saved. Right? And then we get into 53.5 where it says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. In verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. And then finally in verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. It was the real atonement that occurred on that blood-stained cross. That cross is the verification that we see of who Jesus is. It is that verification of the prophecies that were made about him that were completed through the work that he did. It is that sinless man who willingly, the sinless God-man who willingly goes to the cross. He is not led like a sheep to the altar table. He goes willingly there. John chapter, seven, John chapter 10 verse 17 clearly says this about that about Jesus. John chapter 10 verse 17 If you would turn there with me please. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Don't miss that. Resurrection is the work of the Trinity not the work of a single person in the Trinity, that I may take up my life again. 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. The commandment I received from my Father. We see the subordination of the Son in the Incarnation here. The incarnate son subordinate to his father in heaven. There is a difference between the incarnate Son's subordination and the eternal Godhead that goes on. But Jesus in this role, when he takes upon the flesh of men to fulfill all righteousness, he does these things. To be that for us that we couldn't be. Galatians 1.1 tells us this. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Romans 8, 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, boy, just circle that in your Bible. You can live on that for the rest of your life, that the Holy Spirit itself dwells in you as a believer. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We see that the activity of the eternal Godhead is fully at work in the raising of Jesus and confirmed in that ascension that we see in him that the Trinity is always at work never not at work the water then and the blood form the witness of the Son of his work here that we can see obedient from the beginning and fully obedient to the cross that that willful obedience of Jesus is the only hope that we have That is the witness of Jesus, the Christ. The obedience of Him, that is the life that we could not live and the death that we could not die. These acts standing as towering evidence of who He is. It should give us great confidence in the Savior that saves completely. Remember, when Jesus saves, He saves completely. You are not partially saved. You are fully saved at the moment you are saved. There is not something additional that needs to be done by you to add to this salvation. You are fully saved by the work of Jesus. Do not nullify the cross by thinking you need to do something to get it. Because that is a lie straight from the pits of hell. Jesus did it all. I believe there's some songs about that. Which leads us then to the witness that we see of the Spirit in 1 John. Now we're going to take 1 John 5, 6b, right? That's the second half of, of, of 6 there, where it says, It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Verses 7 and 8, this is my little historical thing. We could, There's nothing hidden here. But if you're reading out of a New King James Version or a King James Bible, you will have something significantly different here in verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8 say this, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. I would not be a believable pastor if I did not address the common Johannian which is referred to in this verse. You will have something that will say upon the lines there like this. If you have your new King James, I have it, unfortunately, I put it on my first page. So it reminded me. So if you just bear with me for a second, it'll say this in your King James, your new King James. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the father, the word and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. That's verse seven. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. Those words are not in the earliest manuscripts that we have. You will find them after the third edition of Erasmus' Greek New Testament. Uh, when, for lack of better or eloquent words, uh He was challenged that those words were not in his Greek New Testament, in the first two editions. And he said, if you can produce a copy of it, I'll put it in. And lo and behold, a copy was produced that had that. And so he put it in. But that's where you find it from. So that's about the 16th century, 1500s. Doesn't change the meaning. What we see is somebody trying to add clarity to what's being said. Somebody that has some difficulty with how it's being worded here, and granted, John's words are not—they're uh, not beautifully formed in this particular part. Nonetheless, they do speak the truth. When he says here that the for the three, there are three that testify: the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. What we see here is the adding to the witness of the work of Christ. We see the work of the Spirit. We see that the Spirit is also testifying to the nature of Jesus in the work that he does. If you would turn back with me to Matthew chapter 3, we ended in verse 15 where Jesus permitted John to baptize him. And I have to admit, there's part of me wants to hear the other conversations that aren't recorded that are going on here. We can almost see that there was kind of maybe a little, I mean, they are cousins. that There could be a little argument that's going on, a little back and forth to make sure this happens. You know, that is just the humanness of me that wants, I just want more. Give me more here. Uh, but it's not for us to know. What we do know is what is written. What we do know is what is recorded. In verse 16 says this. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. John saw the spirit of the Lord descending as a dove and lighting on Jesus. Witness there at the river, we see the descension of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, the incarnate one. The Spirit testifying to his obedience in all righteousness. Listen to the words of Peter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10 verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That Holy Spirit is the same. We uh, and I'll just say it, not to be fancy, but we'll say Paraclete—that's the Greek. You hear it in church all the time; uh, that they they'll dance that word out there, the Helper. Uh, John sixteen verse seven. If you would turn there for a moment, John 16, verse 7. Jesus promising the Holy Spirit to come. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then dive down to verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me. He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All the things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. The Trinitarian work that occurs for the believer through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit standing as witness along with the obedience of the God-man Jesus. This should give us further confidence of the work of Christ. That Jesus is not just a concept. That Jesus is not just a teacher. That Jesus is truly the Messiah. He is the anointed one. The Christ. The fully God-man. God-enfleshed on earth. But John is certainly not done in these short verses that he that he places for us in here. If you would turn with me back to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, now we're going to find the witness of the Father. 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this: that He has testified concerning His Son; that He has testified concerning His Son. Take that little flag you have in your Bible, and back to Matthew chapter three, verse seventeen. Not the only place where this is uh, is recorded for us at, but it's convenient for us because I've been there so long. And it says, so we have that, that, that John, as Jesus has come up out of the water. We don't know if John held his nose to go under or not. I'd feel a lot more confident doing it when I was baptizing if I knew that that's what John the baptizer did because he had a lot more experience baptizing people than I did. But we know that when Jesus came up, And we see the Spirit is like a dove alighting upon Him. And then what happens next? And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When all righteousness must be accomplished, this is My Son whom I am well pleased. It is not, we don't see, what we don't see here is the witness of one. What we see is the witness of the three. We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that for uh, that John is referring to, that witness to what Jesus has done through baptism and the cross and completing all righteousness there this same Jesus who Hebrews 7:25 sits upon the throne interceding for us sits next to the father on the throne interceding for us we know that it's important for these witnesses to be given to us we have Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6 On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death, but he shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Or verse uh, Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That's why why when we read the book of John, Himself. It is legal Jewish testimony. All as you see throughout there is witness after witness after witness to the deity of Christ is there. And in John chapter 8, verse 17, he even reminds the readers even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. So we have these three we have the testimony of Jesus himself, we have the Spirit, we have the Father there who are testifying that what is done through Christ Himself. If you would turn with me to Second Peter chapter one verse one. Second Peter one verse one. I have to say, as an aside, it was uh, the scripture has been uh, uh, has been amazing this week. Uh, just as an aside, not in my notes and stuff, but I feel compelled to say it. Uh, uh, I had a uh, an awesome disco- uh, discussion with a brother uh, earlier this week, uh, which drove me deeper into the scripture uh, on things, and it was phenomenal. Uh, it was just a, just an amazing. Amazing time to be able to study uh, to study in the Scripture this week, and to just uh, just to see how God has provided redemption for us. Just to know even more who Jesus is. I mean, this is how we confirm that. You know how you confirm you're a believer? I figured, uh, who was it that had, there was 15 questions? I think it was it was J. C. I want to say I'm going to attribute it to J. C. Ryle. There's 15 questions to know if you're a believer, right? I said, well, what if you know what I already said? 16th question. Here it is. This is the one that everything else hangs on. Do you desire to know more about Jesus? If you desire to know more about Jesus, then that's pretty good confirmation that you are a believer. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the world out there, the world that apparently is super offended by particular pronouns you use, but is not offended by babies that are getting torn apart in the womb, cares nothing about Jesus. But if you desire to know more about Jesus, that is a good sign that you are a believer. And I'm going to tell you what, it was, uh, you know, when you, you know, sometimes it was just, I went to places, I was able to go, I was able to uh, be taken places in scripture you know, just through as you're following, uh, you're following the life of Jesus. You're following the life of the apostles. You're following the witness that they give, and you cannot help but open this book up and see things afresh. I'm not saying making up new things, but seeing things like, holy, wow, that's awesome. That is just so great to see. And in this in this particular verse in Second Peter chapter one one, it says, Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, the unity of believers, right? You're hearing about the unity of the body of believers, unified body of believers here, right? By the righteousness, listen to these powerful words that Peter himself speaks, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. It is just amazing that, Fully human, fully divine, that Redeemer that had to be truly man to suffer and sympathize for us, and that Redeemer that had to be truly divine to satisfy and secure our salvation. I'll come to a close on this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. It seems like so long ago that we preached through Hebrews. I commend Hebrews to every one of you uh, if you want to start seeing the Old Testament and how it relates to us as believers. We are not divorced from the Old Testament by any stretch of the imagination. Hebrews will give you a vast look at the work of redemption in Christ and how it relates to the Old Testament how it relates to the prophets of old. And just listen to these words that are spoken here in the first four verses. The scope and the breadth of what the author is saying is, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom... Also, he made the world. And he, Jesus, is not only the radiance of his glory, but he is the exact representation of the nature of God. And Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made that purification of sins, when he has completed all righteousness... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Now this is a fascinating verse, verse 4. It is a stunning verse when you really think about what is being said there. We can get ourselves wrapped, uh, wrapped around this incorrectly, but look, having become as much better than the angels and inherited a more excellent name, because Jesus was fully incarnate and the scripture clearly says that man himself in flesh is less than the angel. But at the ascension of Jesus when he is incarnate in flesh and fully divine and seated at the right hand of the Father he exceeds all those things because he is not created. He is the exact representation of God. This one who they saw standing in front of them and ascending in front of them is the exact representation of God himself. And yes, there is a degree that it is a mystery. But it is that one who is able to forgive us of sins. It is that one who completed all righteousness on the cross and satisfied the wrath of the Father and the hatred of sin. These verses should give us great confidence like it gave that ancient church when they heard it of who Jesus is. These verses should give us great confidence that we are able to stand against a dark and twisted world. A dark and twisted world, God has blessed us, all of us in this room, with mothers, but a world that now denies what a mother is and denies the fruit of the womb that God said is a blessing for them. A world that speaks against what God has created and denies the God that made them. I would challenge you today to pray for these poor souls that are on TV. I've I've heard some horrible things that people have said. And some horrible things that they have said against my God and my Savior about that. And I would ask that we are to pray for our enemies. We are to pray for the salvation for these that do not know Jesus. And I would ask that you would pray for them too. Because this world needs a Savior. And we don't hold on to our Savior like it's a private club that we're in. We should freely cast about the name of our Lord and Savior and the gospel and the good news of redemption that comes through Him. And I would challenge you all to do that this week. This one more verse, Colossians 2, verse 9. And then a song that I won't sing. Just some verses. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's Jesus. And I was, this week I heard a song, I, 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 texted, our, uh, I texted Stephen about and I said, man, I, I heard this song and it's just so good. And it's the song by faith. It's by the Gettys. And just a couple of phrases I, I just pulled out of there. If we remember from First Peter, we, we have that, the, the, that I would say that the, the prophets, they longed to look and know who Jesus was. And it was revealed to them that they were not writing these things for their own sake, but they were writing them for you, is what Peter says, so that you would know who the Messiah was. And it says, the second uh, stanza, and it, it says, by faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts, of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. Then it says, we will stand as children of the promise, we will fix our eyes on him, our souls reward. Are you seeing Jesus as your reward? John clearly is. And he's assuring that church in Ephesus. Them too. It says, we will fix our eyes on him, our souls reward till the race is finished and the work is done. We will walk by faith and not by sight. Let's all bow our heads. Glorious and heavenly father, thank you for this day and your word and just all that you have accomplished through, through the redemption, through your Son, we would ask that we long to know and learn more about Jesus for as long as we are on this blue marble spinning through space. We look forward to the time when we pass over that sea and land at the Eternal City, that we will be able to see our Savior. Um, We ask that you give us the strength to stand firm in your word, to not falter, to rely upon the Spirit's work within us. Please be with us throughout this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand and join us as we worship through song.